If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today on the Everything 80s podcast, comparing Ready Player One, the book, to the movie. Hey guys, what's happening? Welcome back to the Everything 80s Podcast. I'm Jamie, and today we're looking at you know, something that's been out for quite a while as far as Ready Player One, the movie, and the book goes back even further, but it's still, you know, I still see people new to the book and discovering it for the first time and discovering the movie, and I think it's one of the best examples of pop culture and everything nostalgia put together in the last few years. So I thought it's worth looking at the two different things, whether you've seen just the movie or you have only read the book or you've seen both just to kind of compare them all. And it comes back to like, how many times do you hear someone say the book was better than the movie? And this may be the case, but we're looking at two entirely different mediums mediums and comparing them is not exactly fair. So it's also looking at that issue of how you can't compare books to movies and, and things like that. And you think back to, how you know Stephen King hated the movie version of The Shining compared to the book, and you know that's one of the greatest movies now of all time, and it's also included Ready Player in Ready Player One, so it sort of looks into all of this. You know, some books seem so untouchable for being made into movie that when it happens, there's always disappointment and backlash. So we'll get into it all, but before we start, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcast. I should be there. Okay, let's do this. So Ready Player One was written by Ernest Klein, and it's one of those books that seemed like it could never get the big screen treatment. It was too deep. It was too vast. All these things to be able to be represented on film. The Ready Player One movie, however, did not try to fully recreate the book, but I think successfully managed to offer a bit of a different version. Both the book and the movie... Ready Player One have their own unique components that make them enjoyable as two separate entities in my mind. But if you're a big fan of the book, here's a look at how the two of them compare. I wanted to look at the differences the book has that the movie did not include, along with some additions created just for the movie that were some real incredible standouts. So here's the synopsis of Ready Player One, the movie. And Ready Player One was directed by Steven Spielberg, and the screenplay was written by Ernest Klein and Zach Penn. It stars Ty Sheridan, Olivia Cook, Ben Mendelsohn, Lena Waithe, T.J. Miller, Simon Pegg, Mary Rylance. It came out on March 29th, 2018. 
It made $41.8 million in its first weekend and had a four-day total of $53.7 million. That's a pretty solid opening. And I think right along with where it was expected to open with predictions of 40 to 50 million, you know, not a monster Marvel type hit, but definitely very solid for a movie that most people had no idea what it was about. And if the name Spielberg wasn't attached, I don't know if anyone besides fans of the book would have seen it. It ended up grossing 582 million worldwide by the end of its release. And that's, that's a very, very good take again for not being a superhero movie or Star Wars or a Pixar juggernaut. It's very hard to do well with a unique film property. So I think something like this can be considered a success. Critic-wise, it was also very solid. It has a 72% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and it generally received positive reviews. Not epic ones, but again, very solid. So the plot of the movie revolves around a thing called the Oasis, which is a virtual reality simulation where people can be any character or person they want, and they can travel to any designed world they feel like. It focuses on a guy named Wade Watts who is determined on finding a hidden Easter egg that was hidden somewhere in the Oasis. The Easter egg was put out there by the creator of the Oasis, James Halliday, which is kind of like a Steve Jobs type figure. Uh, You know, it kind of influences from Apple with Steve Jobs and um, Wozniak and, and kind of that connection. Wade has an obsessive pursuit of finding the egg by absorbing himself into all things pop culture and nostalgia um, and any of the information revolving around the 80s primarily because Halliday was, you know, grew up in the 80s. So he would devise a set of hidden keys that you would have to find one at a time in order to eventually get to this egg. And they're based around a lot of these, you know, pop culture 80s based um, things. So the one that finds the egg would inherit control of the Oasis and essentially a trillion dollar commodity. A corporate entity known as IOI is also trying to gain control of the Oasis and they hire an entire army to try and unlock the pop culture, pop culture clues that Halliday has left behind. Wade takes on the identity of Parzival in the Oasis and he has a best friend named H. And the first key they discover is from a race when they're going through New York City, exposing them to some cool things like King Kong, the T-Rex from Jurassic Park. Um, there's, there's, Speaking of Easter eggs, like you can go through this movie for 10 years and not find everything that's hidden in it. You know, like he's Wade's driving a DeLorean. You see like the Batmobile. You see Bigfoot. There's a million things. <clears throat> so Wade discovers the key by going backwards through the race. Wade has befriended the alluring Artemis, who is also passionate about learning about Halliday, his clues, and all things pop culture. So along with a group of other gunters, which are egg hunters, they form a group called the High Five. The next key, they find the next key when looking for um, Kira, who was a lost love of Halliday, and who Kira is also one of the characters in the Dark Crystal, the original Dark Crystal. And I did a whole review on the brand new Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. If you want to listen to that, it's the past episodes. So while they're looking for this key, this takes them through Stephen King's The Shining. And at the meantime, IOI is led by Nolan Sorrento, who finds out the real identity of Parzival, tries to recruit him, but ends up capturing Artemis, who we learn is named Samantha. Samantha now is to work in the IOI center, and it's found that the third key is on planet Doom. It turns into an all-out war with Wade calling every gunter in the universe to try to take down the main fortress that is protected with a force field. 
Artemis deactivates the force field in a very Obi-Wan Kenobi way, but Sorrento detonates the Cataclyst, which is a bomb that kills all the avatars on Planet Doom. The last challenge is playing the game Adventure, an old Atari 2600 game, which is considered to have the very first Easter egg in a game where the game designer put his um, name in a hidden room. Parzival is able to get an extra life from a quarter he got from a museum creator. He finds the Easter egg, gets the last key, and is greeted by Anorak, who is Halliday's avatar. Parzival is given the golden egg and control the oasis, which he runs with his friends. So we'll look at the some of the differences between the book and the movie. There's a ton to go through here. And if you've read the book, you know that it goes so deep on some really obscure, super nerdy things. And I think it's understandable why the movie wouldn't include them as they needed to go with some broader pop culture in order to attract a bigger audience. I feel I have a good grasp on the 80s pop culture, but there were a lot of things in Ready Player One that I was completely unfamiliar with. And there's no way a mass audience would have been aware of some of these things. And it's what really creates the biggest differences between something like this with the, a film and the book. The whole issue could be an entire book itself. So I'm going to try and highlight some main areas from the book that weren't used in the movie. So the first one is the planet Ludist and the game Joust. In it, like any movie that is based on a book, in two hours, you just don't have enough time to go deeper into any of the backstories. Of, of the characters or even the main character. And that's the case here with Wade. A lot of the timeline in the book takes place over years. So you can't complain how they needed a more condensed story in ready player one. The book Wade goes to a high school on the planet Ludus. He finds out that the first key is actually hidden on this planet and it's been under his nose for a long time. He also first meets Artemis here in a cave. That's a recreation of the tomb of horrors from dungeons and dragons. So to get the copper key, which is the first key in the quest, he has to beat the old arcane arcade game Joust, if you remember that, which is from 1982 and involves a knight riding on an ostrich. So that's how the book was compared to the race scene from the movie. Next big thing from the book is the band Rush. And it's a huge part of the book. They're barely mentioned in the movie, but they, they're a significant part of the egg hunt. The quest for the crystal key revolves around their album um, 2112 and the song The Temple of Syrinx. The temple is where the key is hidden and Parswell finds a 1974 Gibson Les Paul guitar that's crammed into a rock, kind of like the sword in the stone. He's able to get the guitar out and then plays the Rush song Discovery, which is all about a hero that finds a guitar behind a waterfall. Look it up and you know if you have it on your Spotify or Apple Music and you can read all the lyrics. When he plays the song, a secret message appears and he finds out that the third gate cannot be unlocked alone. When he places the guitar back on the altar, it then transforms into the crystal key. It also displays a single A on the handle, but with no other clue. This A would be the front gate of Halliday's castle called Castle Anorak. Next thing we have is Planet Middletown. This is an awesome part of the book that I was really hoping would make it into the movie. Planet um, Middletown is where Wade transports or sorry, teleports to after finding the copper key and going through the copper gate. This is the planet where Holiday's hometown was and his boyhood home has been recreated. This part of the book involves Wade playing through the video game Dungeons of Daggerath. And this game is one of the very first 
first person perspective role playing games ever made, and it was put out for the Tandy computer in 1982. It's you know, obviously crude now, but pretty amazing for its time. And there's just no way you would be able to cross this over into a movie. It, you know, plus most people have never heard of it. Like I said, the book goes really deep into <laughs> a lot of nerd culture. Next part here, number four, to me, arguably the best part of the book is the inclusion of the movie War Games. And in this part of the book, Wade is being placed into the movie and has to go through all the scenes as Matthew Broderick's character. I was certain this was going to make into the movie because War Games is such a pivotal part of Ready Player One, the book. So I guess that it is again, not super well known and it would have been lost on a lot of people. Uh, but if you've seen war games, you know how significant it, it is as an inspiration behind all things to do with ready player one, but they, you know, would do another, um, alternate version that works very well in the movie. We'll get to in a bit. Next one is the Jade key planet arcade and Pac-Man. So five months take place between finding the copper key and then the Jade Key in the book. Planet Arcade is a flat and barren planet, and it's designed with old vector graphics. If you remember like that 3D style used in 80s video games? The whole inside of the planet is made up of old arcade cabinet games. So the planet contains the arcade from Halliday's Youth, and in it is an original Pac-Man arcade game. Wade plays a perfect game, but is only rewarded with a quarter that is from 1981. The quarter becomes an accessory he can use at any other time. And it's just something the movie, um, you know, they, they include the whole thing with the quarter, but they do it in a different way. In the movie, he gets the quarter at the museum of Halliday's life from the curator and, you know, still a pretty good scene. These parts were very important from an exposition standpoint. So I get why they wrote it in this way, but you know, it would have been awesome to see some form of Pac-Man and like that scene uh, that's similar to the book in the movie. The quarter is able to respawn Wade's avatar and allow him to play adventure on the Atari 2600. And that is also similar to the book. The next thing unique to the book is planet Froboz and the text game Zork. There's no way this was going to be able to translate into a, a movie, but this is where the second gate gets unlocked and the Jade key is awarded. This is also one of the deepest cuts in the book involving the text game Zork. I remember this game because my cousin had it, but if if you don't know it or if you do, Zork is an interactive storytelling game from 1979 where you follow text instructions and make decisions. Kind of like a computer choose your own adventure. And I did a whole show on the choose your own adventure books. If you want to look in the past episodes, the planet of Froboz is where there are hundreds of different 3d versions of the game Zork. And this is also where um, Dido, one of the high five gets murdered by the group of the Sixers. And the next step is now unlocking the Jade key. You can actually still play Zork online. If you just look it up, like Google it Zork online and you can play the actual game. Next thing is Blade Runner and Black Tiger. And I was certain they would use Blade Runner in the movie. It's just, it's too iconic. And even if it's more of a cult movie, it's still, it's so impaired to the theme of ready player one, the book, but no such luck. Again, it's probably as much to do with um, commercial rights and everything like that. But 
what yeah they go to a much better alternative but you know blade runner is just so iconic the jade gate is unlocked when wade goes into a simulation of blade runner and it's set in the tyrell building which is one of the fictional corporations from the 82 movie hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home go to prettylitter.com and use code spotify for 20 percent off your first order and a free cat toy terms and conditions apply see site for details when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over 600 each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply in it, Wade has to complete, uh, remember the the Voigt-Kampf machine, which is in Blade Runner, which is used to determine if an in- individual is a human or a replicant. Wade then has to complete the video game Black Tiger straight through from beginning to end. I didn't know the game Black Tiger at all, but it's an arcade game from 1987 where you play a barbarian battling through eight different levels. When Wade competes this, completes this, he gets a clue, which is a star inside a red circle, which is what's on the cover of that um, 2112 album by Rush. Next thing is Monty Python. Another thing I was certain would be in Ready Player One, the movie, but we can't always get what we want. Again, it's probably all the licensing issues that come into play with this, or if it would just translate over. Again, I don't know if the average person even knows um, Monty Python that well, especially younger people. But before he plays Adventure, Wade has to play the game Tempest, which is an Atari game from 1981. Tempest is a 3D type game that's similar to uh, like Luke Skywalker flying through the trenches on the Death Star, but with way worse graphics. He then has to role play through Monty Python and the Holy Grail, interacting in the actual movie and having to recite all the lines of dialogue without missing one the same way he had to do with war games. I'm not sure if this was, yeah, I, I think it might have been a bit too obscure and it's just not as, you know, like 80s blockbuster type thing, which they wanted to include. The The movie did opt for more of, again, that mass pop culture motif, which I get, you know, you're, you're probably better to include something like the Jurassic Park T-Rex than a movie made by old British comedians. So, you know, but let's look at, Differences included in the movie that worked well. Considering this is a Steven Spielberg movie, it it kept the spirit of the book throughout it. There was a very good chance they could have destroyed the whole thing, but I think they pulled it off. Like Steven Spielberg was one of the, obviously the first people considered to make the original Harry Potter movie. And he apparently was going to go in and just like overhaul the entire thing. He was going to change like, how Hogwarts was. He was going to have, he was going to make it more like a, you know, a high school situation where there'd be, you know, cheerleading groups. And he, like, he was really going to dismantle the whole thing. So 
that's another, I mean, that's a whole other podcast itself, like how the Harry Potter movies relate to the books, you know? So there's always going to be those discrepancies, but so like in this case, he could have destroyed the whole thing, but you know, served it pretty good justice. I think the Harry Potter fans of the book would have gone ballistic based on what he was proposing to do with the movie. And that's why they didn't go with them. So what we were seeing in ready player one, you know, the movie is almost, you can kind of consider it more of a tribute to the book as opposed to recreating it. And, you know, for myself, once I realized that's how it was going, it was easier to, you know, more lose yourself in the direction the movie was heading as opposed to focusing on what it was not including. And I think that's a big takeaway when you're looking at any of these things that are being uh, movies that are being translated over from books. Once you realize what the direction of the movie's going, kind of lock into that and, and just follow what the, the director's new intent with it is. And that makes it much easier than sitting there like, why didn't they do this? Why is that in there? Why is this? You know, it just it changes the whole kind of way you can perceive the whole thing. So here's some awesome things in the Ready Player One movie that weren't in the book. So I, that opening race for the first key this was like the big showcase opener, which was, you know, Spielberg trying to come out with a bang. And I think they accomplished that. The book doesn't have any, you know, blockbuster type scenes like this. And this was and then also a way to really embrace the sound and size of an IMAX screen. You know, seeing a DeLorean whipping through the streets in New York being chased by a T-Rex and King Kong is pretty amazing. And it makes for a really good uh, discovery of the first key. Here's a good Easter egg in it. And the scene where the, I think King Kong sort of smashes the road and they have to jump over it. There's a Batmobile. And when it's screeching to a halt, the screech sounds of the tires are actually the notes of the original Batman theme. Check that out if you haven't seen it. And then, of course, the the shining scene. To me, this was hands down the best part of the movie. And honestly, one of the best scenes I've seen in a movie in a long time. And an example of a new addition to Ready Player One, the movie that's not in the book, but it's brilliant. So... Like I said, I was upset at not seeing Blade Runner or War Games, but with The Shining, I think they hit on something even better. Using it as one of the clues, they go into the actual movie, and it's the perfect addition to the film. The advantage with the movie The Shining is that most everyone knows it and has seen it. Even if you haven't, it's such an iconic movie, and there's so many iconic scenes and lines, you know the parts it's referencing. So everyone knows the hallway or the elevators of the blood or the creepy twins. Uh, and it, so it's a perfect way to enhance the movie. Another awesome thing was the Zemeckis cube and back to the future. Spielberg said he didn't want to include a lot of his own movies that are in the book, such as ET. And even if this is him being humble, you, you have to step back and recognize the contributions you've made to pop culture. You know what I mean? Like no one's going to get upset if he loads his, his own movies into the thing. And then people were expecting it. There's all no, also no reference to star Wars except for a mention of the millennium Falcon, but they still keep a bit of back to the future in there. They didn't go overboard with it, but had to include the use of the DeLorean. And I feel the scene with the Zemeckis cube was a way to acknowledge one of the best movies of all time. But with Spielberg not, you know, having to think he's tooting his own horn, uh, horn. The Zemeckis Q makes great use of some of the also the Back to the Future score, which I think enhances the movie. The score for Ready Player One is actually conducted by Alan Silvestri, who did Back to the Future. John Williams was originally supposed to do it, but didn't. So, and you know, there's little things like if in H's workshop, there's a Real Act Mayor Goldie Wilson poster in there. So there's all those little touches. 
Uh, next one, Mad Balls. This is a quick little scene, but one of my favorite parts of the movie, and to me, like one that got the probably like the best reaction from the audience when it's saw it in theaters. In case you don't know what Mad Balls are, I did a whole podcast on it. So again, go back and and look at the previous episodes. They're a toy from the mid '80s that were just basically grotesque-looking rubber balls. In Ready Player One, the movie, uh, a dust brain—that's the name of the Mad Ball they used—was um, an explosive device as opposed to the holy hand grenade used in the book. The holy hand grenade is based on one from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So just switching that up and then throwing in that classic toy was pretty awesome. Okay, let's look at finding the Easter egg in the game adventure. I mean, thank goodness. The way the movie's going, I thought they weren't even going to include this, and I was shocked to see the actual Atari game adventure being used at the end of the movie. The problem is there's no way you can, you can't include the game adventure because it's the absolute cornerstone of the book. Without this, you may as well not even call the movie ready player one. So anyone who's from the eighties, you know, and you grew up on Atari, you played adventure, you probably owned it. But again, there's a huge majority who have never played this thing. There's probably even fewer that know it's the very first video game with the Easter egg. I said that's in it where it's uh creator what's his name uh warren robinette where he puts his name in the that little hidden room so it's just it's very amazing to see this simple game from a very simple system being used as the pinnacle of the movie and seeing the use of this game helps establish ready player one as being faithful to the book despite the limitations having uh put on it by a two-hour film again it's it's so you can also play adventure online again just look up adventure video game online and can play it and have a look at everything and then if you you, again go on youtube and you can find like a a breakdown of how to find the easter egg in adventure so it's worth seeing here's some here's some things the movie did wrong i don't want to spend a lot of time on this because it's always easy to be negative with adaptation adaptations to movies and that's generally the first reaction but like i said Try and see what the new intent with the film is going to be and just try and lock in on that to have more appreciation for it. And then it gives you more appreciation, whatever movie, it is, if it's Harry Potter's or whatever. Let it give you more appreciation for the original book. So when you go back to read them, there's more in it that um, seems more amazing than it did the first time. So here's uh, just a few things I'll point out. You know, more as observations, try not to be negative. One thing is not following the development of the high five group. Again, this comes down to time as you can't spend all this time establishing all the characters and everything. But in Ready Player One, the book, there's more attention focused on the creation and development of the high five group. In the movie, it just gets a casual mention. Not including Ludus and more of Wade growing up, that to me was was tough. I think this establishes more of the Oasis um, and his backstory and the movie just has to jump right into it with him already being on the hunt for the egg. I didn't love TJ Miller in it. I think he's funny, but I just, I don't know. I think his scenes felt like kind of wasted time to me. That's just me. Ready player one. The movie didn't go as deep into the Oasis as I thought, considering all the, um, possibilities they had CGI wise. It's, it's like they just kind of breezed over it very quickly. Again, I don't know how much time is expecting they would actually be able to spend on this. Uh, next thing, I get my own personal issue again, but I hated they ended the movie with You Make My Dreams Come True by Hall Notes, mostly because I despise that song. 
I was thinking it'd be much better to use like Take On Me by Aha, which they used in a lot of the trailers and promotional stuff would have been the perfect finish to it. The biggest thing I missed was not having the small time stuff such as Holiday's Hometown and the inclusion of the obscure video games. I know there is no way to do this, but I was hoping to see the inclusion of the Captain Crunch whistle, um, which is a very famous story. If you don't know about it, uh, look up the history of Captain Crunch crunch the bosun whistle uh how important this thing was to the development of apple computers i'll have a whole podcast about this whole thing uh so you know since the the shining replaces the date jade key challenge we don't get to see that awesome thing the, the quick thing with the captain crunch whistle is it came here, here's the quick run it came out in, in captain crunch serial in the 70s and as a toy that when you blew it it produced a tone at the exact frequency that could trick phones into making long distance calls for free and this led into a hacking underground movement called Freakers with a PH. And in, in the book, one of the clues is based around the use of this whistle. Uh, the clue in the book says the captain conceals the jade key in a dwelling long neglected, but you can only blow the whistle once the trophies are collected. Um, yeah, and, and one of these uh, people who was really obsessed with the underground freakers were was steve jobs and steve wozniak and it's in a big influence behind it so that's a whole big massive story but in the movie i'd never noticed this uh till later but one of the researchers in the movie that works for ioi is seen looking at a box of captain crunch on his computer and the same box is actually seen on the shelf when wade is choosing his outfit in the garage so i mean like they threw it in there so that's still cool okay let's wrap this up so that's the differences between the book and the movie. And the book is a real modern classic. It's a real great, you know, kind of love letter to the 80s and pop culture. Ready Player One, the movie, is a love letter of its own, but in a different way. It's it's not a genuine recreation of the book, but it's like an offshoot of it. It embraces pop culture, but from more of a mainstream perspective, while still trying to be as faithful as it is possible to be to a book and the problem that any adaptation has. The whole the whole book is better than the movie mindset to me is never the right approach and there's no way to ever come to a good conclusion. In this example, when it comes to Ready Player One, uh, the book versus the movie, I think it's just about celebrating each one for what they are and being happy that we have both of them. I found, like I was saying, I found Ready Player One, the movie has increased watchability, meaning that when I think of it as just something to, you know, I want to watch something quick. It comes to mind now. It's starting to get into that conversation with, you know, go-to movies, you know, like things you've seen a million times, like, you know, Back to the Future, Indiana Jones or Star Wars or whatever. And it's starting to like pop into my head is like, oh, I'll just throw that on. So that's a really good sign for um, any piece of content. And so maybe this is because it's still relatively new, but I think over time we'll see like what place it has in our top movie list. But the book itself I think will only grow and grow more over time and more people are still discovering it for, for the first time. It'll be interesting to see what happens with a follow-up sequel to the book and if it will be ready or sorry, would be written more as a screenplay knowing it might be adapted to a movie and how that'll alter it. Ernest Klein also has a book called Armada, which is um, more of an actual story 
and it's got pop culture inclusions, but it, it's not on the same focus as Ready Player One. It's still really good, but if you're expecting it to be Ready Player One-ish, it's not. But still a great book. So I'll wrap it up here. Hopefully you enjoyed this if you're a fan of either the book, the movie, or both. And, you know, you find some of this interesting. So thanks for listening. Again, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcast. I should be there. That's it for me. Talk to you later.